Welcome to Here's How, a podcast about true stories and how we tell them. Here's How is a project of the Low Residency MFA program in Narrative Nonfiction at the University of Georgia's College of Journalism and Mass Communication. I'm your host, Diana Keough. On today's show, I'm chatting with Brendan P. Fleming about his memoir, Miseducated, published by Hachette in 2021. Brandon's book has received praise from high places. In fact, Kiese Lehman, the author of Heavy, wrote, Miseducated is a stunningly crafted book. I learned how to learn and how to teach again in Miseducated. This is a breathtaking art and heart work. He's a renowned speaker, nationally acclaimed educator, and former debate coach at Harvard University. He founded the first black pipeline program called the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project, and he is also the founder and CEO of Veritas School of Social Scientists in Atlanta. Brandon, great to see you. It's good to see you, my friend. How have you been? I've been well. It's uh, been a very long time, so I've been looking forward to being able to talk to you and catch up. Oh, absolutely. So always good to talk to you, always good to catch up with you. So full disclosure, Brandon and I were cohorts and classmates in the MFA class of 2021. You've gone on to do huge things. So that's where we're going to kick off this conversation. And if we could just start out with kind of a summary of the book that you have written called Miseducated. Absolutely. So I wrote a book um, called Miseducated, and it was part of the MFA program at University of Georgia. The book captures my journey, making it from growing up in the streets of New York, getting into all kinds of trouble with gangs and drugs and violence, and then being a basketball star and making it to college, but then suffering a knee injury and subsequently becoming a dropout and this very long journey that eventually led me to making it to Harvard University as a teacher there and making history at Harvard, starting the first Black Pipeline program. And yeah, it just kind of captures that story of making it out of the streets and making it to Harvard and becoming a, a change maker. Now, this isn't the book that you set out when you started the program here. It's not the book that you wanted to write. So kind of tell that story. <laughs> It is not. You know, it's it's such an interesting story. I did not intend to write Miseducated in its current form. I intended to write something completely different. I was actually recruited to the MFA program by Valerie Boyd, and we all miss her, you know, and she, you know, rest in peace to her. She recruited me to join the program some time ago because I actually wanted to hire her to assist me with writing this book that was meant to be far more prescriptive. And I I wanted to write a how-to book because I've developed these strategies and this methodology that transforms students into scholars. And I wanted to share that kind of formula with the world. I met with her a couple of times and she was hearing me out and, you know, then she was like, you know what, I, I think there's something you should consider. And she told me about the MFA program. And I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. I just want you to help me write this book that I want to write. And but she kept on pushing and kept on pushing. And I was like, fine. And I went to the MFA program and it was during our low residency. And I'm sitting there in, in classes listening to these lectures on 
journalism and reporting and interviewing. And I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. It, it, it seemed nothing like what I wanted to write. I wanted to write a very academic focused book, you know? And so, yeah, it, it definitely wasn't what I intended to write, but I'm so grateful for the, the professors at UGA who saw something in me that I didn't necessarily see in myself at the time. So how did the mentors kind of find out that there was a story behind the story with you? Yeah, you know, so it, I mean, it really started with Valerie and the reason why she wanted me to enroll in the program, because as I'm telling her about what I want to write and as I'm telling her about, you know, these educational strategies and this pedagogical model that I've created, you know, she's like, OK, you know, that that's wonderful. But who are you? And, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm not really here to talk to you about my background. I just want to talk to you about these solutions <laughs> that I have created that I want to scale and share with the world. And, she, you know, she's kept on probing and asked me more about my story, about my journey. And then she realized that's the book, you know, and I didn't realize she didn't say that directly to me at the time. But I think she kind of. She knew, so she kind of pulled me in, you know, and so she probably didn't want me to run away, you know, by suggesting an alternative. So she was just like, hmm, OK, there's something I want you to try. Yeah, we'll 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 help you write that book. Come 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 on over here to this program. And so I go to the program thinking they're going to help me write the book that I told Valerie that I wanted to write, not knowing they had something else planned for me that changed my life forever. I, I would distinctly remember <laughs> um you in the back row. We were both back row people. And and you wanted to quit. I did. I want to say this was probably, Diana, about maybe two or three days in. The first day, I, at first I, I immediately knew it's not what I wanted to do after the first day. But I was like, oh, you know what? Let me give it a couple of days. Maybe they'll get to the stuff that I'm actually interested in. Maybe they'll eventually get to the type of book that I want to write. And it wasn't happening. And so about three days in, I'm like, okay, clearly this is a complete departure from what interested me and the book that I wanted to write. And so I got up from that back row and folks probably thought that I was going to that. No, we went on break. And that's when I realized, you know what? I'm out. I, I think I'm done. I have other things that I need to do. And so on my way out, Pat, she stopped me. And she just asked if I was okay. And so I just had a moment and I told her, I said, listen, you know, I'm so grateful for you all, but this really just isn't for me. This isn't the type of book that I want to write, blah, 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 whatever. And she says something to me that it was just one of the most profound moments I, I've ever had. She said, I just want you, she said, I get it, I understand, but I just want you to consider that great books aren't about problems great books are about people. And then we just started to kind of talk about that for a moment. And Pat knew that I'm a passionate educator who wants to change the world. But she also knew that you can't change the world without changing people. And one of the things she said to me that will remain with me forever is she said, I want you to understand that information doesn't change people, but stories do. And it just it just hit me. It resonated with me. And I was like, wow, that was the first time that I looked at narrative as a tool that I could use to to change hearts 
and change minds. And it makes sense because true change comes through the front door, the heart and the back door of the mind. You know, that when you really want to impact people, the way we do that is not through information, but the way we do that is through stories. And that was the most profound lesson that I learned. And so I went back into that classroom and I sat down and I listened and I learned and Miseducated was born. To write your memoir, well, actually to write anyone's memoir and to tell your story, you had to tell the truth. And to tell the rawness of your story, kind of walk us through the process that you had to go through to get to that level of truth. I had to travel back in time and revisit traumas that I had not lived or thought about, discussed my entire life. And so, and this was very difficult for me because my story wasn't something that I wanted to share with the world necessarily. And in order to do so, I I had to go back in time and do so much unpacking. And so that's when the lectures, you know, on the the interview skills that we were learning and the journalism skills that we were learning and and all that, that came in handy because I had to engage people in my life, you know, who were in my life at that time. I had to interview my mom. I had to interview my siblings. I had to go on this scavenger hunt for information to piece this puzzle together, you know, to fill gaps where where my memory failed. But most importantly, I had to relive it emotionally. That was the most difficult part. So reliving it, I had to become my inner child again. I had to relive those moments because one of the things that I understand about narrative is that you have to not tell people, but you have to show people. And so I had to show people what I experienced. And so I had to experience it again, you know, and um, that was that was tough. I'll be honest with you. You know, it took me about a year to write that book. And I spent about a year battling depression. I mean, it was it was hard. I had to journey into a very, very dark place of my life that I had shut out for so long. It was like ripping the bandage off of a wound, you know? And so, yeah, it was it was very difficult, you know? And I'm just so grateful that I had Pat to help push me through it. There were times where she asked me if I need to step away and gave me grace and I stepped away from a, for a moment until I could pull myself together. And then we went right back in it together. She was like my partner through that process, not just academically, but emotionally, you know, really pushing me through. And so, yeah, I mean, it was it was um, incredibly difficult, but incredibly rewarding because, you know, people always ask me, did this book heal you? And, And I tell them candidly, no, it did not. But it allowed the process of healing to begin. It is really raw. Did you have to make decisions to keep some things out or did you just let it all go in? So, you know, part of the writing process, one of the things that I appreciate about Pat during that time is she relieved me of the pressure of feeling like I had to produce the perfect chapter, you know, that I had to figure out all the answers in my first draft. I let it all out first and then we went back and cut and then we went back and doctored it and pieced it together. That first draft I wrote for myself and the drafts thereafter, 
were what we were writing for the world. You've probably heard this, but the criticism of people in their 20s and 30s that are writing a memoir is that there hasn't been enough life lived for there to be enough look back. Because what makes a memoir successful or even worth reading is that there's a lot of learning that went in. So how would you address critics that you in your late, it was late thir- late 20s at the point, at that point? Yeah, I think I just turned 30, actually. And uh, yeah, you know, who can really be the judge of that? You know, no, no one can tell you when it is the appropriate time to tell your story. Uh, only you can decide when it's time to tell your story. And regardless of how many lives you have lived, I mean, for me, it just so happened that <laughs> I lived so many lives. By the time I turned 30 years old, I had a lot of stories to tell. But what if it was just one? That one life you've lived, that one story that you have could be so powerful because somebody needs to hear it. Somebody can relate to it. Um, And while our experiences might be different, you and I may come from two completely different places. but, But what unites us is the fact that we both experience the same human emotions in different ways. But honestly, that's what we connect with. That's what we connect to. It creates a sense of empathy. And and that empathy is truly what changes people, or at least postures them for change. And so for me, I mean, I I knew I had several stories to tell. But for some some person out there who may only have, you know, one story to tell, tell that one story, you know, tell that one story, because there is somebody out there in needs to hear it. So you mentioned your mom and the people that you had to go back and talk to. It was a tough situation. And I, there's other people that are listening that have to, um, the people that they're writing about are still alive. And this was a really hard story. And your mom doesn't come out looking the best. How did you walk that really hard path to tell the story and actually deal with so many of the people in your life that are still alive and tell the story. Kind of walk us through that. You know, on the subject of empathy that I just mentioned, the person that I had to learn to have the most empathy for was my mother. Because the process of investigation that was required to write this book and the conversations I had to have with my mother seeking answers, I found answers that I quite honestly did not want. And it made me realize things that I did not want to realize, but I couldn't unknow them. And one of the things that I realized in that process was that everything as a child, seemingly everything bad that happened to me was a direct result of her incompetence, emotional incompetence, her choice in men in particular. The abuses I endured were a direct result in her poor choice in men. I struggled because I I asked myself, why didn't my mother want better for me? But then on the other hand, I asked, why didn't she want better for her? Why didn't she want better for us as a family? The truth of the matter is, my mom was a victim of the same thing that I was a victim of, miseducation. It, it's, it's a cycle. 
And and the truth of the matter is every single one of us are born into circumstances that we did not choose. It doesn't matter if you come from poverty. It doesn't matter if you come from privilege. We did not choose the families that we were born into. We did not choose the hand that was dealt to us. All we can do is do our best to play our cards and hope that it's going to turn out well. And that's what she did. And and I realized, you know, for, for myself that I made so many mistakes because of the ways that my environment educated me or miseducated me. And the same was for her. And so I, along the process, you know, of learning to give myself grace, I learned to give my mother grace as well. But yes, absolutely. I mean, she was definitely one of those characters in that story that was incredibly complex that I had to learn how to navigate that relationship. Even my relationship with her now is different as a result of this book. And, and we're still just learning together. When I told my family I wanted to write this book and, and tell this story, they were like, okay, who's going to read it? And I was like, uh, the world. <laughs> and they were like, wait, what? <laughs> why, why do you want to tell people about this? So at first they, they didn't understand, but I had to help them understand, listen, this book is designed to make people talk because we as a community cannot heal from the things that we are too afraid to confront. And so I told him, you know, maybe, you know, we can't go back and change things for us, but maybe us talking and us sharing this story with other people, maybe it can change something for someone else. And honestly, I think that's what gives it value. There's the difference between those of us who lose our minds and go crazy and those of us who have an impact in the world. A lot of times we've been through a lot of the same stuff, but those of us who have an impact in the world have somehow found a way to repurpose our pain. I honestly believe that because when I think about my own journey, my own life, and when I was on the hospital bed after trying to commit suicide, it's because of pain. And I didn't know what to do with it. And it's not now that I, I live without pain, um, but, but now I found something to do with it. I found a, a way to repurpose that pain into something constructive that can potentially make somebody else's life better. And, and that gives my pain purpose, and that's what allows me to live with it. So I think helping my family realize that is, is what made them more open to the idea. You had... Um people that entered your life and uh, that Pastor Gilbert, for example, um, was a big influence on your life. And you have a moment, in fact, a couple moments, and and I, I, I meant to count them up and you probably know off the top of your head. There were a lot of moments in the book where you actually would cry out or whisper, God help me. And there was one in particular with Pastor Gilbert in the church where it was almost like divine intervention. You had a choice to put that in there or not put it in there. And especially as you were steeped in, you know, the black church and the experience of um, how much the church meant and those people meant to you. Uh, Kind of walk me through the decision that you made to kind of display it or put that scene in the book that you did. The narrative in general is several ironies that coalesce into this um, success story. And each of those um, those people who I encountered, those places that I ended up were very ironic. Who would think that this thugged out kid, 
you know, would end up being significantly impacted by a preacher, one, and then two, would end up at an evangelical Christian school that was historically very racist (laughs) and that that would be the place (laughs) where my life was changed as a young, thugged out black kid. So many ironies, but it's meant to show people the beauty of serendipity. That that everything happens exactly the way it's supposed to. And and even the things that are disguised as failure and inopportune, you know. And so for for me, I had to tell that part of it because it, it was part of helping people understand all of the unexpected places and people um, who who shaped me, you know, not not only that pastor, but even the professor you know, who was a demure, older white woman um, who was able to reach this ghetto young black man. That's not how most people would write this story, you know, but but the reason why it's important is because it teaches us how to regard the people in our lives whom we are fortunate to meet, you know, um, especially in a divisive culture that, that we live in today. Um, I grew up, I grew up being taught to hate white people. You know, I grew up being told that white people were the devil. You know, for me, my life being changed by not just one white person, but several white people throughout my life. It's, it's God knowing exactly the type of person that I needed at different turning points of my life. And, and now I am a representation and, and an amalgamation of all of them. And so I just hope it shows people that, you know, never to assume that because you come from a different background from someone, that they don't have something to teach you. The impact that you're having and this book is having, I just wanted you to kind of share with listeners how it's being received on the outside. Oh, yeah. You know, it's the most beautiful thing I experience is, um, you know, after speaking, when I come off the stage and I go and sign books and people come to me uh, in tears because they they were touched. That is the most beautiful feeling that I can't even articulate to know that the pain I endured, not just going through those experiences, but writing about those experiences, that someone was able to benefit from it, it makes it all worth it. It makes it all worth it to know that there are things that people don't have the courage to talk about, but that I was somehow able to inspire them to tell their own story. And the way I describe it in the book is to sing their own song. Um, because our stories are beautiful, you know, and, and, and our stories are, are not without pain, but it's because of the pain that we learn to sing our song and tell our story. And that's what makes the world such a beautiful place, because that's what allows us to connect and learn more about people for whom we are different. But the truth of the matter is, so many of us are dishonest about who we've been. 
And we don't understand the impact of that. There are so many young people out there right now who think that their failures and their inadequacies and their insufficiencies disqualify them from being something great. And the reason why is because those of us who have been just as inadequate, those of us who have been just as insufficient are not being honest about the places we've been, the things we've done, the people we've hurt. And so as a result, they can't look at us and say, well, you know what? If he did the same things I did, but he still turned out this way, maybe there's hope for me too. That's what we're giving people when we tell our stories, not not just of our successes, But when we are honest about our failures, we are giving people hope for what they have the potential to be. I mean, think about MLK and leaders like him who were incredibly inspirational, but incredibly flawed. But we don't typically have access to his humanity because we're not allowed to know that side of him. And so there's so many children who think they can never be an MLK because of the things they've done, not knowing that MLK did those things, too. And so when they know that, then they're like, you know what? Maybe I can be him. You know, maybe I maybe I can be somebody at the top um, because people at the top uh, are not that different from me. I don't tell my students to be fearless. I, I don't like when people tell people to be fearless because being fearless is not being human. I tell them to do it afraid. That, that's what we should do. We shouldn't we shouldn't say, oh, you know, I got to be fearless. No, it's OK for you to have fear, but do it afraid. Don't don't allow fear to impair you. Don't allow fear to to stop you. Move forward and and carry that fear and embrace that fear. And at some point it will leave, you know. But um, if we're all sitting around waiting to be to be fearless, you know, a lot of us won't move. And so, yeah, it took a lot of courage and and I did it. I I did it while fearful. You know, I did it afraid. So, Brian, what have you chosen to read for us today? So I am going to read an excerpt from what was the, the turning point of my life or one of the many turning points in my life when I encountered a professor in college who met me where I was which then spurred my um, intellectual transformation. And so this was a moment that everything kind of changed for me uh, when I realized not just where I was, but how I was miseducated. I didn't understand what she meant by we. In this instance, simply allowing me to redo it would be an act of grace. But when I explained that English was too hard, that I wasn't cut out for it because I was so many miles behind everyone else, she wouldn't allow me to wallow in self-pity. She told me that I was not a, that I was not in it alone. She was willing to get down into the trenches and struggle with me until I figured it out. She went beyond the call of duty for me. Over the next several months, she spent weekends and time outside of her office hours to help teach me how to read and write. But the way she did it was perhaps the most impactful. She met me where I was as a black man. She talked about two other black men who charted their own journeys to literacy. Their names are Frederick Douglass and Malcolm X. But I brushed aside these well-meaning comparisons, certain that my deficiencies were far worse than any shortcomings these men had ever experienced. But she did not enable my self-pity. I saw everything that I wasn't, but she saw everything that I had the potential to be. You have two decisions you can make, she said to me one day. You can moan about your disadvantages 
or you can do something about them. The choice is yours. Suddenly, it struck me that I had been here before, not as a student, but as an athlete. When I was in middle school, I realized I was not going to grow tall. I was fast. I was strong. I was skilled, but I was short. Yeah, as an eighth grader, I was recruited to play on the high school level in the Amateur Athletic Union, a national league for elite travel basketball. I'd send defenders crawling on the floor with swift crossovers, plow through the lane with agility and spring in the air for a layup, only to have my shot deflected to the rafters by a six foot something giant who would stare me down as the crowd cheered. My confidence about my skill was undermined by worries about my height. I concluded that I was out of my league. But Coach would have none of that. With a piece of gum flapping in the corner of his mouth, he'd step to my face and in his drill sergeant voice say, We don't complain, son. We compensate. Excuses weren't allowed. And if I or any of us ever tried to use them, it didn't matter what point of practice we were in. He'd halt and roar. You making excuses, boy? Then the whistle would blow as he screamed, Assume the position. Fifteen wheezing bodies would hit the floor, and while doing push-up, we chant in chorus, excuses are tools of incompetence which build monuments of nothingness, and those who specialize in them seldom specialize in anything else. So I stopped making excuses on the court and invested in a pair of strength shoes, training sneakers with a platform in front of the forces, uh, in the front that forces your calf muscles to bear the strain of keeping your heels elevated. For an entire year, I spent hours in my garage, mornings, after school, weekends, jumping rope and doing plyometric training. By the time I reached the ninth grade, I could soar above the rim, dunking and jumping higher than most guys who were older and taller than me. It was this discipline and the intense labor that allowed me to play much taller than I was. I realized that Coach and Professor Nelson were sending me the same message. There were probably no academic equivalent of strength shoes but I wanted to know more about the two black men she had mentioned. Of course, I heard their names before, thanks to the dutiful Black History Month programming in school every February. Those learning modules were meant to engender respect for black history, but they actually oversimplified and diminished it. Douglas was famous as an abolitionist and, sainted, and the sainted black friend of Abraham Lincoln, but I knew nothing of him as a self-taught scholar and rhetorician. And when our textbooks or teachers made any mention of Malcolm X, he was positioned as the violent antithesis to Dr. King, not celebrated as a revolutionary and an autodidact. All right, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Rage mounted in me as I devoured these books. A certain fire is sparked when you realize that you've been deceived. All my life, I believed that black scholars didn't exist. Maybe they existed somewhere in the world, but not in mine. They weren't in my neighborhoods. They weren't on my television. They weren't in the textbooks that teachers wanted me to read. All I saw was black gangsters and black drug dealers and black athletes. So that's what I wanted to be because that's what I thought black people did. Representation is a lens through which we aspire. I saw Allen Iverson with his cornrows and tattoos and urban swag. And I thought I could be him because he looked like me. Sure, I had heard that only three of every 10,000 high school players ever make it to the NBA, but representation impacted me more than probability. When I saw Allen Iverson, Stefan Marbury, and Vince Carter, I saw myself. And that was all that mattered for a kid who was learning how to dream. Why is it that basketball was all I ever wanted? It's because passion is born through exposure and affirmation. My mother had put a ball in my hands she had showed me what to do with it. Then she told me 
that I was good. But what if someone had put a book in my hands instead of a ball? What if someone had showed me how to read and then told me that I was smart? What if that book had exposed me to something great about my people and my identity that I could be proud of? What if it had showed me that I was a part of a, le- of a rich legacy of greatness? What if it exposed me to my heritage and native land in a way that did not depict Africa as the quintessence of poverty? What if it has showed me something about my culture that is inspiring, not injurious, and that did not pretend that black history began with slavery or that did not relegate black achievement to a 400 year freedom struggle? As I kept on reading, I soon realized that history is told by the victor told from the perspective of the person who wields the pen like a spoil of war, and the oppressed are left with a narrow study of their own defeat, left out of the story or indoctrinated with the fiction of inferiority. My life would have been completely different had I known these truths, but I knew them now, and I was ready to do the work of undoing my own miseducation. Brandon, thank you so much for just spending the time with Hirtel and uh, sharing your story with us. Of course, of course. Thank you so much, my friend, for having me. Um, I appreciate you and, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. This show is produced by me, Diana Keough, and edited by Amy Padula. With special thanks to MFA director Moni Bazu, for nurturing this writing program and this podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed it, we'd really appreciate you sharing it with your friends. As always, thanks for listening.